Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. What's the future for public service broadcasting in the UK? What are the benefits of a Channel 4 privatisation? And following a new research report that reveals the Walt Disney Company spent more on content than the whole of Asia in 2020, have we reached peak TV? On this week's telecast, I'm chatting with Jonathan Thompson, CEO of Digital UK, and Wayne Mark Godfrey, CEO and founder of new research and analytical service, Purely Streamonomics. It's all coming up on this week's telecast. My first guest on this week's show heads up Digital UK, the business that manages Freeview, the UK digital terrestrial TV service owned by BBC, ITV and Channel 4. Welcome to Telecast, Jonathan Thompson, CEO of Digital UK. Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the show. And now, uh, just to clear something up as well, now Sky is also a shareholder in Freeview. Can you just uh, just clarify that? Yeah, it's one of the one of the complex uh, parts of the British landscape of free-to-air TV joint ventures. So yes, um, I run Digital UK, which is a joint venture between BBC ITV and Channel 4, as you said, and we sort of operationally manage the Freeview platform uh, from a sort of technical and commercial perspective. We work very closely with a, a different company called Digital Television Services Limited, who own the Freeview brand and do the Freeview marketing. And they have the same shareholders as me, BBC ITV and Channel 4, but also Sky as a shareholder, shareholder who were a, a shareholder when Freeview was founded back in 2002. So we are technically two different companies. We work in partnership very closely. But yes, the Freeview brand and marketing is led by a, a different company that I don't control or run, <laughs> but we work very closely together. So hopefully that clarifies. It's not the most yeah. uh, straightforward explanation, but hopefully that all makes sense. No, it does. And and obviously, a business with lots of, you know, very powerful and very influential key stakeholders within the TV broadcasting landscape. Now, for those who aren't aware of Freeview, perhaps our listeners from outside the UK may not be so familiar with the brand. Can you just briefly explain what Freeview is and how long it's been around and how you can access it? Yeah, of course. Freeview as a service launched in 2002. So we're coming up to almost uh, 20 years old. 
Initially, it was effectively, it was digital TV over the air. So it replaced the traditional kind of analog TV, terrestrial delivery of television with uh, digital terrestrial television as, as part of the, uh, the the national program of digital switchover, which feels like a lifetime ago. It was back uh, sort of uh, completed in 2012. So Freeview has always been a, about free-to-air television, but we have evolved the service over time. So pro- it, originally, it was around free-to-air TV over the air. What we've done in more recent years is evolve the proposition into a, a hybrid proposition. So what we offer is the best of over-the-air linear channels, but also on-demand content, particularly from the public service broadcasters, but also a range of other content partners as well. I think the key principles of Freeview in terms of what it stands for are, are really three things. One is simplicity. Uh, we try to make it an easy-to-use service, very um, uh, user-friendly for our viewers. The second is universality. So it's it's available to everyone for free once you've once you bought a TV or set-top box to receive it. And the third principle is is the key one for us in a way, which is partnership. So the service is run in partnership with lots of other players. Uh, We particularly work with TV manufacturers. So we sort of, the Freeview service is made available to lots of smart TV operators and also set-top box operators. And we work work with them in partnership. So they will make the TVs and sell them, but we ensure that the Freeview service, both on demand and over the air, works on those devices and we work together in terms of how those channels and on-demand services are made available on their device within their UI. So it's it's a it's a model based on the principle of partnership, working with lots of manufacturers and other partners across the industry. But fundamentally, we're about great free-to-air television, whether it's over the air or over the internet. That's our right. kind of primary goal. And those smart TVs obviously are really key gateway really nowadays to uh, to accessing services such as Netflix Amazon and Indeed. and uh, and freeview and, and and lots of others your stakeholders are public service broadcasters and it appears to me that we're approaching a real watershed moment for two of the UK's public service broadcasters namely the BBC and also Channel 4 uh which the government has announced its intention to sell Britain has long been held up as a leader in public service broadcasting. The government clearly doesn't think Britain's public service broadcasters are fit for purpose in their current state. Have have they got it wrong? <laughs> uh, a very good and leading question. I mean, I, I suppose to, so. To take a step back, I think I, I think you're absolutely right that the, I mean we ha- we have a rich and vibrant TV ecology in this country, and I think we should be very proud of it. And I think it, it it's made up of lots of different things. One part is the strength of the public service broadcasting system. So that's both the kind of the model of public service broadcasting and the individual institutions and what they offer in terms of free content, original British content, and breadth and diversity of, of their output. But clearly, also, we also benefit from a very vibrant commercial market. And we've seen, obviously, Sky and lots of other commercial players and increasingly Netflix and Amazon in more recent years. So I think we have a very healthy ecology in this country, but I think it's public service broadcasting has always been at the heart of it. You're absolutely right that the, the the landscape is clearly changing very very fast, and I think I think the big trend that um, that we see is TV has for a long time been kind of a national industry. It's been largely defined by national players, but that is fundamentally changing. The nature of TV that we enjoy and that we watch, and the way in which we watch it, is being increasingly shaped by international players, and most of those you know based in Silicon Valley, and we we kind of know who who all those are, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think the question it raises to this to, to the point you kind of started with here is uh, you know i think the first question we need to ask ourselves as a nation is do we continue to want public service broadcasting as a sort of as an outcome as an intervention in the marketplace and i think um what's interesting about that question and we, we sort of touched on this on our in our outside the box event earlier in the year is that actually pretty much everyone agrees that public service broadcasting is a good thing and we want to protect it whether that's kind of the industry itself the likes of sky and amazon and netflix all of all of them talk about the positivity of uh, of, of 
uh, public service broadcasting. And indeed, Ofcom themselves last week in their um, report on public service broadcasting stressed its ongoing importance. And the government themselves do acknowledge its ongoing importance. And we've absolutely seen that, obviously, during the pandemic. I think it's there's been lots of clearly downsides about lockdown and the pandemic. But one of the positives, I think, is a sort of a, a better understanding of the important role that public service broadcasting plays in terms of informing the nation, entertaining the nation and, and keeping everyone informed in, in a moment of national crisis. So I think there is absolutely an important question to ask about the future of public service broadcasting and how it's delivered. But I think we have to start with the premise that pretty much everybody agrees it needs to be protected and preserved. The interesting and important question is how, in the context of how the marketplace is changing. And I guess that gets to the heart of kind of what you were touching on in terms of some of the government's proposals, particularly around Channel 4, but also the BBC. And I think I do slightly worry that we're asking the question perhaps the wrong way around, particularly in relation to Channel 4. I think what we should be debating is if we believe in public service broadcasting, how do you sustain it in a, in a very fast changing marketplace? And within that, what role does the BBC play? What role does Channel 4 play? And of course, what role do ITV and Channel 5 and actually the rest of the sector? Because lots of other parts of the sector provide real public value, whether that's Sky News or the likes of Netflix and Amazon. So I, I think it's absolutely right to be having a debate and a discussion about the future of public service broadcasting. But I, I do think it's really important it starts with the right question, which is we continue to believe in it. The question is kind of what role does it play and how do we sustain that? And if I were to, I'm not going to get too overtly political, but I think I, I do slightly worry we're sort of leaping to very specific questions about the privatisation of Channel 4, for example, without really get, doing the kind of the thinking that needs to come ahead of that, which is what's the ongoing role of the system as a whole and the, and the specific institutions within that, recognising that a lot of it works really well. We have a great TV landscape in this country that people really value. And I think there's a danger of sort of unpicking the ecology without fully understanding the consequences of what you're doing. So, yeah, sorry, that's a long answer to your, to your question. But I think a debate about it, the future role of public service broadcasting and how that's sustained is absolutely right. And I think we need to do that in the right order. I mean, the Channel 4 privatisation seemed to come out of nowhere. I guess if you're close to it, it's probably been bubbling on for a while, particularly once this particular administration was, uh, was voted in. But the government currently saying that Channel 4 is vulnerable to fluctuations in the advertising market. Now, that's presumably, you know, came to the fore in lockdown one when the whole of the country's advertisers and international advertisers stopped advertising. And we saw some really scary figures about yeah. a drop off in advertising, which seemed to me crazy because it was thought, well, you know, if you've got money, spend it at the time that nobody else is, it's going to be cheaper. But there we are. That's, that's, that's another thing. So that there was obviously a disastrous dropout in the advertising market, but Channel Four, it looks like it's recovered incredibly well and and seems to be, you know, uh, come out about even in terms of uh, financially through, through uh, through its advertising. But the assumption is therefore that Channel Four can't stand on its own two feet financially, and the government's really looking to focus its public spending elsewhere. That surely is the assumption that you make. Well, it's, uh, it's difficult for me to comment on in terms of what the specific sort of thinking lies behind the government's uh, kind of work on Channel 4. I suppose a, c a couple of observations I would make. I mean, I, I should sort of hold my hands up. I, I worked at Channel 4 for 10 years from 98 to 2008. So sort of I had 10 years working for the organisation. It's, it's an organisation that you know has a, a sort of really strong place in my heart because I think it plays a vital role in the ecology. I think the interesting thing about, first of all, privatisation is it's, it's, it's an issue that's arisen with regards to Channel 4 several times over its life. And every time it's been looked at, the conclusion has been reached that privatisation is not the right model. Mm. And that's that's happened several times over the last three to four decades. Uh, but it keeps arising. I think your point on the advertising market is interesting. And Channel 4 is 
perhaps more than the other public service broadcasters relatively dependent on TV advertising. I don't think that's a particularly big secret. It, that's kind of at the heart of its model, given it's a, it's a publisher broadcaster. But again, in my time at Channel 4, we saw a number of moments where the ad market looked like it was in freefall and then recovered relatively quickly. It, I, I think people who know the TV advertising market know that it's it's a sort of bellwether for the wider state of the economy, both in a good way and a bad way. When the, when the economy looks um, in not a good shape, TV advertising struggles, but it also bounces back fast. And I think the interesting thing about the... Um, the consequence of lockdown is it's sort of you know a, a sort of a level of fall in uh, in TV advertising that I don't think any of us had seen before, but also a recovery that was much faster than any of us expected, and it sort of highlights that actually it's much more resilient as a model than I think perhaps people realise. So I do worry slightly about sort of leaping to conclusions on the basis of two or three months of, of data from the early months of, pa- uh, of the pandemic about the underlying sustainability of Channel 4. As I say, I mean, I think it ultimately is for the Channel 4 management team to set out their views about the sustainability of the model. But I, I don't think the question, I don't think it's right to go, because of a challenge in the ad market, it's suddenly the right moment to privatise Channel 4. I think the right question to ask is, what's the role of public service broadcasting in this country more generally? What role do individual institutions like the BBC and Channel 4 play, particularly given the, the huge role they have played today and continue to play today? And then, of course, to have a discussion about the sustainability of their models. But actually, I think the Channel 4 management team have done a brilliant job over 40 years. Um, I won't probably claim any credit for that in the time I was there, but of, of evolving the model and changing it and adapting it to respond to these challenges. Firstly, in launching digital channels, which was sort of in my time, uh, launching E4 and More4, which worked really well to diversify their, 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 their reach in the TV landscape. And then obviously with the launch of All4, which has been phenomenally success- successful. So... I think Channel 4 has been really good at evolving its model to respond to wider market changes over time. But I would worry about sort of, um, as I say, sort of a knee-jerk reaction to very unique events in the sort of spring of last year, which actually most of the evidence suggests there's been a really healthy bounce back in the ad market. We've seen fundamental changes, haven't we, to the broadcast sector exacerbated by the pandemic, not only advertising. And we've we've really seen the rise of the S vol. Yeah, really the start of the streaming wars, if you like, that that we're starting to see now. And this, you know, a lot of aggressive takeover, mergers and acquisitions activity. How do public service broadcasters fit into this new landscape that we're seeing now, and how do they stay relevant? I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely the right question to be asking. I think it's worth, first of all, starting in terms of what what are the kind of enduring characteristics of what public service broadcasters are there to do is probably the right place to start. For me, there's, there's a kind of lengthy list, but I think there's a set of kind of characteristics that do endure. The first of which is about, I mean, I would say this as a person who kind of runs through to ETV and uh, in Freeview, is kind of the importance of free and universality, that everybody in this country continues to have access to TV for free, regardless of their ability or willingness to pay. That's always been a core characteristic of our marketplace. And I think that is one that matters and endures. Hmm. The other big role, clearly, is in their ability to sort of, I mean, I would describe it as kind of to make programs that are reflecting and representing British life, the British culture, British ecology, you know, how British society works, which is not to say that Netflix and Amazon and other players don't make brilliant TV programs. But fundamentally, Amazon and Netflix are about making TV programs once for a global marketplace. And the UK's public service broadcasters are about making TV for UK viewers uh, and making TV for the full range and diversity of UK viewers, regardless of kind of where they live or who they are or what their perspectives are on the world. Um, now, there's always room for improvement in terms of how they do that. And I think there are important steps that public service broadcasters are taking in terms of ensuring their ongoing relevance. I mean, I think in particular, I think collaboration, working more together in terms of how their content is discovered and found in a more complex TV world is part of kind of the Freeview story. 
I think clearly kind of thinking about how they can better engage younger audiences is, uh, is a, a sort of well-acknowledged challenge that they are all thinking about. So I think there is always room for sort of evolution in terms of what they do and how they do it. But I think fundamentally, the core of what public service broadcasting has always been here to do endures. And I think what is required is both for those institutions themselves to respond to those challenges, which I believe they have done well, but also for the government itself to put in place support for that through a, a revised sort of framework of legislation and regulation in this country. And in essence, that's what Ofcom called for last week in their review of the PSP system. The UK government has got a strategy of levelling up the wealth and opportunity across all parts of the UK. As you say, you know, you would think that was very much aligned with a public service broadcaster remit. But at the same time, we're seeing public debt at its highest level since the end of World War II. You know, we're still battling coronavirus in the UK and obviously uh, right across the world. But what's the case for the UK investing in TV as opposed to making the cutbacks that it's presumably working out that it's got to make? (laughs) This is a very big pot and a very big pot of money has gone into standing up the economy over the last 12, 18 months or so. So, you know, we know the cuts are going to come. We know presumably that there's going to be tax rises and we're all we're all going to pay for this in some way or another. I'm sure that's true. Yes, I'm sure that's true. But, but what's the case for the government continuing and even increasing investment in TV as opposed to those cutbacks that you might assume will be on the horizon? Well, I actually, I think the case is quite compelling. And in a way, it'd be, it'd be interesting, I don't know whether the government will do this, it'd be interesting to sort of, I'm, I'm not sure I really mean this, but it'd be almost hypothetically or philosophically interesting to sort of look at the cost benefit analysis of public service broadcasting in our country in terms of what does it cost us as taxpayers, uh, but also what are the benefits that flow? Because I think, if you think about where the UK is sort of as, as a nation on the world stage, there's a lot of reasons to believe that actually public service broadcasting can play a really significant part in our sort of future economic and social democratic health. And there's a number of reasons for saying that. The first of all is, you know, we, we have a very healthy TV production sector in this marketplace. And one of the reasons for that is because of public service broadcasting, because of the intervention in, in supporting and promoting the health of British creativity, British production companies, both in terms of making programs in the UK, but also those programs being sold internationally. So I think that the intervention of having, for example, Channel 4 as a publisher broadcaster required to work with independent producers has not only delivered kind of social benefits, but huge economic benefits in terms of kind of UK creativity. So I think there's kind of there are significant economic benefits that flow from from the intervention. That of course, as you say, does you know, cost um, license fee payers money in terms of paying for the BBC and sort of you know, the, the the wider support that the government puts into the system. So, but there's a real payback in terms of you know the UK creative industries, the economic health of UK creative industries, and the role that they play in our economic recovery. So that would be one example. Another, which is harder to measure sort of financially, but I think is about at a time when the, when Britain is looking at itself and its role on the world stage, our creative industries and TV within that play a huge role with regards to that. You know, British TV content, British TV output, and in particular the BBC, are acknowledged and loved across the world. And I think it plays a huge part in, it's a phrase I don't particularly like, but I will use kind of Britain's soft power on mm. the world. So there are also kind of wider sort of benefits that flow that are not necessarily kind of uh, pounds, shillings and pence, but about kind of Britain's voice in the wider world. So I think there's a really strong case, actually, that, you know, that, that the role public service broadcasting plays, both in terms of the social and democratic health of the UK and in, at the end of the day, entertaining viewers, 
but also the, the support it can play in terms of the UK's wider health economically and socially on the world stage. So I, I think there is a very strong case for ongoing intervention in the system. And I, I really hope that that doesn't get lost in the debate. I think if it's just seen as a debate about sort of making cuts, cutting public spending, I think we are missing the wider point. And that was really, it was a really interesting theme that came again out of the Outside the Box event a few weeks ago, is a couple of the economists who, who were commenting were saying we should look at public service broadcasting not as a sort of uh, a sort of negative market intervention, but actually a profoundly positive investment in, in sort of UK PLC. And that's certainly how I would think about it. And I would certainly urge the government in there thinking about the future of public service broadcasting to look at it in that way. There must be some sort of measurement <laughs> that, uh, that's been looked at. You know, as, as you said, you know, the, the UK production community and uh, exports are, are huge when it comes to Channel 4 commissions, for example, and Channel 4 not being a business that owns IP. Mm. I'm sure there's somebody totting up. <laughs> The, uh, the various columns somewhere. I would certainly hope that in, in sort of looking at, the, uh, looking at the future of Channel 4 and, and the, the live debate about privatisation, that, that, that smart economists, certainly smart on me, uh, would look at kind of the net benefit to the wider kind of health of the UK creative industries that has come from Channel 4's existence. Because certainly in my time yeah. there, you know, the profound impact that Channel 4 has had on the creation of, of the UK production community has been immense. And I think it is, it is something that is measurable. I know certainly in, in the, over the years, Channel 4 has looked at that itself. And I, I hope that is part of the debate because there's a danger that we just kind of, to use your language, we only look at some of the columns in the, uh, in the cost-benefit analysis rather than all of them. And mm. I think that is really vital in terms of what is... You know, Channel 4 is a hugely vital part of um, British TV landscape and, and British society. And uh, I hope we make the decisions about its future in the right way with the right evidence and right analysis. Yeah. Now, what's the future of Freeview amongst all of this change? You obviously have a remit to ensure, you know, free TV is accessed by as many as possible. But, you know, with all of these AVODs who are coming to the market now, who are obviously a competitor in terms of free television yeah we've talked about the SVODs. i mean there are so many more players so many more choices i'm not going to ask you what would happen to freeview if channel 4 was privatized because nobody really knows that but but what's what's the future of freeview in amongst all of this disruption there's lots i could say on that trying to, to try and boil it down to a few kind of few comments i mean i think it's i mean you're, you are probably aware i know you've had alistair tom on from freesat so we are mm. just in the process of um uh, of integrating digital uk with freesat so that allows us to bring together kind of the success of freeview as a tv platform and freesat and that's kind of work that's ongoing that's kind of a, a live activity that we're kind of working on now but i think to broaden it out i mean i think you have to start with the viewer fundamentally viewers still love free-to-air tv and that there's a huge role for for the provision of free tv services to viewers and i don't think that is ever going to fundamentally change in this country clearly the ways in which people are watching television are changing and i think the, the role that we can play it goes back to something i said a little earlier about how the public service broadcasters respond to the changing landscape i think the opportunity for us as a vehicle owned by the public service broadcasters is to think about how we can make it easier for viewers to find their channels and increasingly their content on demand. On demand. And clearly, there is, there is a slow but inevitable migration of people watching TV over the internet. Um, I think we've got many, many years of TV over the air still ahead of us. But as, as the ways in which people watch TV change, as they, as they move more to kind of an internet-delivered on-demand model, the ways in which the public service broadcasters can work together through vehicles like Digital UK and FreeSat, and obviously that will now be one, in terms of thinking about how that content is discovered, how it's presented, and how it's made as easy to watch as the likes of Netflix and Amazon are able to do at a global level. So I think 
I think there's a really rosy future for, for free-to-air TV in this country, but it definitely needs to evolve, and it probably needs to evolve a little bit faster because the nature of the, the organizations we are wor uh, working uh, sort of in the market with are, are, have huge resources, are moving very fast. But I think yeah. we can tailor an offering to the UK and to the UK viewer that sort of builds on all the huge strengths of free-to-air TV and public service broadcasting, but adapts to respond to how viewers are changing how they watch TV. Now, we touched on the SVODs. Just going back to them just for a second. At the same time that the government set out its sale plans for Channel 4, it also made mention of regulating the SVODs, particularly news and documentaries and making sure that they're impartial. Is it about time that that, that really came in? I think, I mean, this is not, I, I would say up front, this is not, you know, a deep area of expertise on my part. There are there are much smarter people than people than me at Ofcom and probably in the regulatory teams at the public service broadcasters who will give you a better answer on this. I think there is a case to be made for sort of a clearer level playing field between the public service broadcasters and uh, some of the S4 players. It's it's definitely the case that, you know, that, again, I used to work at Ofcom, so I'm sort of relatively familiar with this. The, the extent of kind of regulation of public service broadcasters is pretty extensive in this country. I'm not sure that's necessarily wrong because they, they, you know, they are public organizations with public responsibilities and they should be regulated. But there's an extensive framework of public service broadcasting regulation that exists, whereas the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime are you know, much um, less constrained by that regulation. So I think it is right to look at kind of is the playing field fair? Is it level? Are there certain kind of equalization of obligations on the on the SVODs that should be applied uh, in the same way that they are applied to the public service broadcasters. And I, I'm sort of welcome the fact that the government have raised that as part of the, the document they published a few weeks ago, although it's sort of fairly vague what it meant in, in detail. I think that's still to come. But I'd be a little bit wary of sort of considering Netflix or Amazon as a public service broadcaster or treating it in the same way. They are different. I mean, fundamentally, Amazon is in the TV business to drive its retail business. Netflix mm -hmm. is clearly fundamentally a content business, but it's also it's an international content business. Netflix wants to make content once and monetize it around the world. So they are different. What they're doing is different and their incentives are different. It's not bad for viewers. It's great for viewers. But I think that you know, the role that they play is very different to the public service broadcasters. So I think I suppose the pithy answer is yes, fairness, equality, a level playing field is a good idea. But I don't think we sort of need to replicate the same model of regulation on the public on public service broadcasters on the likes of Netflix and Amazon because their role is different and the contribution they're making is different. And now it's time in the show for Jonathan to pick his story of the week, the TV industry news item that's caught his eye in the past seven days. Jonathan, what's your story of the week? So I suspect it's a bit of a cliche or a bit too obvious, but I have picked the uh, the TV viewing figures for uh, the England-Italy final in the Euros last Oh, you had, to bring, uh, you had to bring it up. I know, I know. I felt bad about it. I mean, it's a, it's a week ago, and I think we're all probably through the pain. But um, but the reason I picked that is it, the, the data, I think, that was published last week um, by the broadcast showed that we had, um, there were 42 million people watching the England-Italy final, um, 31 million of whom I think were watching it on the BBC or ITV. I think the, the BBC slightly went out, but there were good viewing figures for both. And 11 million, 11 million people were watching it online through uh, ITV Hub or iPlayer. And the reason I picked that is it's, I mean, clearly it's a little bit of a one-off event for England to be in an international final, as we all know. Uh, so, it, of course, it was a one-off event. But I think it's a, it was a really stark reminder of a few things. First of all, how TV is changing. Uh, the fact that you know almost a quarter to a third of people watching the final were watching it online is fascinating, although the vast majority were still watching it in the traditional way, over the air. But I think the other thing is it's just a stark reminder that um, that as much as uh, the emergence of the likes of Netflix has changed TV in positive ways, there are still there are still many moments where we want to watch TV, not as individuals, but as a nation, as a, as a community. And I think it was just a really live example of why 
free-to-air television, live television, that shared experience. I, I describe it as kind of Wii TV. I think there's lots of room for me TV where you just sit down and watch the show you want to watch on Netflix, and that's great. But the, the notion of Wii TV, watching television together, whether it's watching um, the slightly heartbreaking uh, feeling of watching England lose on penalties, or it's watching kind of Boris Johnson's uh, press conferences during the pandemic, or a, the new, a new series of Line of Duty, these profound moments of coming together as a nation and watching TV, I think are really at the heart of why our, our system of public service broadcasting is so important in this country and certainly why I'm so passionate about it. So I thought it was just, uh, although a, a slightly depressing event itself, I thought the kind of the viewing figures and the story they tell and some of the implications were really quite profound and were worth noting. And now it's that time in the show where my guests get to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Jonathan, who's your hero of the week, first of all? So uh, I, did, I didn't think I would say this, but my hero of the week is Peppa Pig. Right. And the, and the reason I, um, I mean, Peppa Pig kept me through going through, or kept my sort of young son going through his two and three years. But the reason I picked Peppa Pig is I, I spotted a story actually originally in the New York Post, although I think the Times has run it this morning, which is uh, in America, obviously similar to us, uh, a lot you know, during lockdown, a lot more TV viewing, clearly a lot of kids at home watching a lot more TV. And what was very interesting is that, there's been a notable kind of rise of, I think you would describe it, sort of Anglicism amongst American children. So, And it comes from them watching Peppa Pig. So as they've watched Peppa Pig, they've started to use more phrases that sort of would come from, I guess, uh, from the uh, an English dialogue, if you like. And the ones I loved in particular were the use of the word biscuit rather than cookie, which obviously is... <laughs> classic one uh, a petrol station rather than a gas station i think was another one that pepper big uses uh, uh, a lot and i think particularly relevant for this podcast was the use of the word telly rather than um, tv so i thought it was just interesting in terms of I, I suppose it highlights you know a wider point joking aside it's nice to see that we are pushing back a little bit about it, it always feels a little bit like the americanization of britain is the theme but to push back on that a little bit but it also highlights that um you know, British creativity on the world stage, which was a theme I was talking about earlier, the role that um, British creativity, British IP can play on the international stage. So I thought it was just a nice little story reminding us that British creativity, British uh, British talent, British ideas really have a, a huge role to play on the world stage, even yeah. if it's uh, teaching American children how to say um, biscuit properly. Telling them how to say tomato. As yes, that, to that was another one of tomato. them. Tomato. Tomato right. and tomato, I think, yeah. is another one that Peppa Pig has now corrected. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful thing. That's good. <laughs> and who or what are you telling to get in the bin? Yes, I say, I, I wonder if this is, I may slightly regret this, but that my, my in the bin this week was, um, was social media, mm. um, which is obviously a, a bit of a sweeping generalization to throw all of social media in the bin. Um, I mean, we are, so I say it was, you know, to a certain extent, a tongue in cheek, but I think there is a point here, which is, I mean, we are all, or many of us are users of social media. Uh, I myself do use social media from time to time. But I think, I think last week after the England game and sort of the horrific kind of racial abuse that uh, was centred on, on the England players sort of in the days following it, do make, it certainly made me pause. Because um, I think, you know, social media for all of us has you know, driven lots of benefits in terms of, you know, connecting with friends. And yes, all those moments of kind of keeping abreast of breaking news. And I think certainly during the Donald Trump period, I think many of us were addicted to social media to see whatever he was going to say next. But there comes a time when you when you begin to ask yourself, do the benefits of social media slightly get outweighed by the by the some of the really unpleasant nature of the dialogue mm. that happens there? So I'm not sure I'm really saying that we should throw all of social media in the bin, but I think it is a moment where many of us must pause and think: is this you know, what what is the what is the role this is playing for us as a nation? Um, how do we better police it? How do we better ensure that the kind of um, commentary and language that was being seen last week is stopped? And I think I, I saw um, Melanie Dawes from Ofcom was talking about this yesterday, but I, I think it is a moment to sort of 
we have to see last week and actually to be honest, several events over the last six to 12 months as a moment to really rethink the role that social media plays in this country and to ensure that it, it can contribute positively, but we just completely get rid of the negativity that sort of it has created in, in, in sort of parts of the, uh, the dark parts of social media. So I don't think I want to throw all of social media in the bin, but I think it, is, it was a week that certainly made me pause and think, you know, do, to what extent do I want to be part of this when you see some yeah. of the commentary and comment that was there? So, yeah, sorry to end on a slightly somber note, but it was it definitely was a moment that made me pause and think, you know, do I really want to be part of this when you yeah. see some of uh, some of the commentary that was made? I think that the time has come for them, a lot of these social media businesses to step up now and, and yeah. really, you know, take the responsibility that comes with their platform. I know this is something that's been in the news for a long time, but you're right, you know, particularly in the UK when we saw, you know, three of our players get racially abused so horrendously, not only just after the game, but actually in the run-up. And that's obviously yes, also yeah. been a, a campaign that's been running for a while from the Football Association and Kick It Out and lots of other football yeah, charities. So quite right. I think, you know, let's uh, let's hope that they've heard that message loud and clear and, and they do something about it. We've been talking about this for, for what feels like a long time. And I, I hope perhaps one thing that comes out of last week is, as you say, it's, it's a moment for, for real action, both on the social media platforms themselves yeah. and also on the kind of regulatory framework. So I hope that's one positive that comes out of last week. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been really fascinating to hear about the future of public service broadcasting. And obviously, you know, this is a hugely complex issue, but it's a, it's a really important issue, I think, for culturally for the UK as well as commercially for lots of the UK production industry. And and I'm sure there's lots of countries around the world that are having similar challenges and thinking about what role public service broadcasting plays. But certainly we've seen lots of benefits there, particularly over the, uh, over the pandemic that I think has reinforced its value. Good luck with everything at Freeview and hopefully see you in, the, in real life very soon. I hope so. Thanks, Justin. Good to meet you. My next and final guest on this week's show is Wayne Mark Godfrey. CEO and founder of new research and analytical service, Purely Streamonomics. Welcome to the show, Wayne. How are you doing? Oh, great. Thank you, Justin, for having me. Not at all. Lovely to have you on the show. And tell us a little bit about Purely Streamonomics, because it's a new business, isn't it? So Purely's been around for a couple of years. We have um, cemented ourselves as a financier, funding film and TV companies against contracted receivables. And we launched Streamonomics to really help our information and research department kind of find out more about what's going on in our industry. Now, you've recently released a report that really highlights the explosion in production spend and programming budgets. And I'm sure many of you listening have seen that report and also we'll put a link in the episode description to it. We actually also carried the infographic for that on Telecast Plus, our newsletter, a couple of weeks ago. Before we go through the highlights, can you tell us a little bit about the research methodology, the, how you came to these findings in the report? Absolutely. I mean, like most of us working in this kind of uh, global pandemic world over the last uh, 12 or so months, there was a real kind of, I felt, misinformation around what we were seeing in terms of how our colleagues and friends were actually involved in productions and how they were feeling about the industry and what was kind of being presented as to what was going on. So we decided to do this deep dive into the um, really the financial reporting of all the major studios and tech companies that uh, operate in this space, looking at all their 
uh, filings and annual reporting to really establish not just around the kind of headline numbers that we tend to frequently get easy access to, but really trying to understand how they're spending money, where they're spending money, and what they're spending money on. We know already that there's been a boom in streaming during the pandemic. We saw that. Can you take us into that in a little bit more detail in terms of what have been the increases and to what extent is this really a boom now? Yeah, I mean, the demand for streaming service has obviously increased through the pandemic since we were all kind of uh, stuck at home needing something to do. The increase from the last reported subscriptions around 640 odd million in 2019 to about 1.1 billion in 2020. And that obviously was driven by the launches of show, uh, you know streamers like Disney Plus and Apple TV and, and HBO Max in, in America, as well as Peacock and Discovery Plus. But I think the interesting part to uh, this 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 shift is that it's 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 more than just a growth in subscriptions, but it's the transition of direct to consumer um, distribution from all the majors. And I think this is going to grow. We we predict that by 2025, there'll be more than 1.6 billion subscriptions. And I think steadily over the next three, four, five years, we're going to see continued growth and continued demand for variety of streaming services across the SVOD scene and AVOD scene. Right. Okay. And that obviously is great news if you're a producer or a distributor. Everybody in the content industry... Not necessarily so much if you're a linear domestic broadcaster, but we'll we'll come on to that in a in a little while. What I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in is the spend and the spend that's coming into production and licensing, and not only how that's increased, but where it's going to go from now. So, tell us about the content spend. Where are we at the moment in terms of the amount of money, which is I know it's going to be a massive number, but the amount of money that's been spent globally on entertainment content? So global film and TV spending in 2020 rose by about 15, 16% to 220 billion against 289 billion in 2019. And this has most interestingly, probably for your listeners, is that based on the SEC filings of all the major companies, the majority of that spend, the 144 billion of the 220, was against direct spending or indirect funding through licensing and co-financing of indie content. So unlike you know Disney producing a new Marvel TV series or studios producing kind of you know their own content. Indie spend increased significantly. And I think that's significantly important to distributors and producers globally. And as you can imagine, um, the majority of that spend is coming out of the US uh, and being spent internationally. But we kind of looked at this on the basis, where's the money coming from? And as you would imagine, US and Canada have the most spend. That doesn't mean that it's not spread out all over the world and how they're spending and where they're commissioning content. But Europe as well also rose by about 12% to $32 billion in 2020. So as more platforms enter the streaming market and more demand from audiences, um, the spend globally increased and, uh, and initially pretty much in every market also rose. 
So in terms of where we go from here, you know, we've we've seen the emergence not only of the SVODs, but we've seen a lot of new players coming to the market in the AVOD area. And they seem to be starting to commission their own original content. Do you expect that to increase? Do you expect AVOD to to play a major part in new content commissioning as well as library content licensing? I, I completely agree with you, and I totally agree. I think I think from my perspective, SVOD and AVOD are indistinguishable in terms of they both have the same goal. They need audiences, they need eyeballs to watch their content. The only difference is one has a, uh, a monthly subscription package and the other is obviously um, earning money from advertisers. But I, in terms of attracting viewers and 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 and, and regular eyeballs um commissioning original content or exclusive content that can only be viewable on a specific surface uh, a bit like the recent quibi acquisition for roku and how that is already uh showing a great increase in viewership that more than i think quibi achieved on their own platform it, original and an exclusive content will play such an important part to the continued growth of these services. And AVOD will follow suit with the SVOD players to um, you know, make sure that they're keeping talent and original great content on their platforms. Now, Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company, obviously has made a big play, major play into the world of direct-to-consumer and SVOD. There was one figure in this report which really jumped out to me, which was that the Walt Disney Company, with a grossed-up total of $28.6 billion in 2020, which is more than the spend across the whole of Asia in terms (laughs) of the biggest original single content spender. That's extraordinary. I mean, that really goes to show the, 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 the real size of the Walt Disney Company, and sometimes you know we think, oh, it's all about Netflix, and and obviously there's lots of other players, but you know, in terms of content spend, that's huge, isn't it? It's it's really significant, and you know, you have to imagine when you think about Disney. Disney is Marvel, it's uh, Star Wars, it's Pixar, it's uh, you know a number of brilliant other you know sectors um, like their uh, ESPNs and uh, and all their documentary side of things so you know it's a it's a phenomenal company and they are investing heavily as they always have done invested heavily in content and the likes of Netflix and Amazon are needing to spend considerable sums to catch up and also create original content and ex- and, and license exclusive content for their platforms I think Warner Discovery is also a mammoth number as the combined new entity will be around 20 billion as well. So we're talking massive numbers of annual spend on content. This is exactly where our research was really originated from. We sat around and thought, wait a second, people are saying that nothing's happening in this pandemic and we're all sitting on our sitting on our hands waiting for, for you know, um, a vaccine or insurance or being able to shoot. And then yet the numbers show that actually spend went up 15 60% on the previous year and will continue to grow in 2021. So that's what I think is fascinating by looking at the filings. We're talking about the major Hollywood studios. We know they're massive. You know, they've got pots of cash. 
and they're spending it on some you know incredible in-house productions they're also commissioning as well but in terms of independent producers where the opportunity is going to lie going forward for indies who are looking to get a slice of this pie indies um have always found a way to create you know original ideas finding great talent and produce stuff that uh, is is really more efficient and more cost effective than sometimes the studios and the majors are able to and i think when we look back at the great independent tv shows of yesteryear and how they were originated and the talent behind them I think there's no difference in terms of the originating new ideas and products is always going to come story first and coming up with the great ideas that deserve a place on our television screens or cinema screens or, or uh, streaming services. And I think that the Hollywood studios and the big tech companies will rely increasingly on indies to generate those ideas and produce them efficiently and locally while they focus on the tentpole franchise style content, which is, you know, very much embedded within the studio system. Up until the pandemic, we saw really, you know, what many people were thinking, you know, it's the new drama gold rush and drama had become massive. Scripted was really the place to be. Unscripted was still very strong and and spending was going up, but uh, drama spending seemed to be really on everybody's lips. And, and, you know, a lot of people were saying, is this it? Is this the the gold rush? Is this peak TV? Have we reached peak TV? Now, that was was two years ago, pre-pandemic. Have we now reached peak TV? I think we're nowhere near it. Nowhere near it, um, Justin. I think we are on the way to even more opportunities for high-quality TV shows to be commissioned and licensed. Um, I think budgets are continuing to rise. And I appreciate that that is on the top, top-tier programs, such as, you know, the Lord of the Rings and the, the WandaVisions of the world. But increasingly, uh, there's going to be more opportunity for those high-profile, high-end dramas with world-class talent. Because, as we just discussed, the streamers, the AVOD players – the broadcasters need to carve out that 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 you know that cooler water cooler moment and that opportunity to be the standout of the pack and if you only look at the uh, the the nominations that came out a few days ago and the ongoing competitive kind of tv arena for these awards it's amazing to see how the landscape continues to become a battleground for this high-end content and this quality content of television. I, I think it's only going to continue. I think we're nowhere near peak TV. All right. Well, that's good news to everybody listening, I'm sure. That's, uh, that's, that's what we need. We need, uh, we need a proper gold rush to help us accelerate out of, this, uh, out of this pandemic. Wayne, what would be your advice to a producer in terms of, you know, where you focus your business? Is it is it on linear TV or is it, I think I probably know what you're going to say here. Is it on linear TV or is it focusing on, on the SVODs or, you know, if you had an indie right now of your own, where would you be focusing your sales pitches and what sort of development would you be looking at? 
Um, I think firstly, I would always say is um, my development, we focus on the stories or the ideas and less about the buyer. And then I would find and try and find the right buyer for the show or content. So my focus would be on content development and finding the best talent and stories to tell and then trying to marry that up. So it's staying true, isn't it? It's staying true to actually what you want to make and then find the buyer for that rather than saying... Yeah, don't let the car um, push the horse, right? And at the end of the day, there's a plethora of buyers and the streamers have opened up another route to market and they are paying well. And it's obviously a, a very attractive commercial uh, proposition um, to license or uh, get commissions from the big streamers. Uh, but, you know... You, you're not going to discount a BBC or uh, an ITV or, or indeed any other international broadcaster in linear world um, if it makes commercial sense and if it makes the right kind of home for the show. I agree that, uh, you know, different programs will fit in different arenas better. And um, but, but I really feel it should be the program guiding the uh the right home as opposed to just trying to you know kind of square peg round hole something into into something that doesn't necessarily fit so stay true to yourself make the best shows that you can and develop the best shows that you can and and they'll find a buyer yeah i think i think you know the quality always rises to the top and it doesn't matter whether it's uh, in uh, unscripted scripted it, you know the same in tv and film world if it's good and if it deserves to be made and there's a home for it there will be a home that's found. Well, it's a fascinating report this way, and thank you for uh, sharing it with us. We'll put a link in the episode description so you can go and download it, and we'll probably put another uh, one of your uh, great infographics on our Telecast Plus uh, newsletter this week as well. So uh, you. it's you know it's, it's really interesting stuff to look at. And I just add, Justin, just that um, as part of the research, what we do provide as purely is acceleration of long-dated receivables. So if you're if you're you know uh, lucky enough to license or show to the streamers or broadcasters and you're you're given this long dated payment over 2 to 3 years purely's there to help accelerate and crystallize that revenue on day 1 and now it's time for Wayne to pick his story of the week the tv industry news item that's caught his eye in the past seven days. Wayne, what's your story of the week? To me it's privatization of channel 4 which has really caught my eye. Mhm. Um, obviously, with this disruption of the streaming giants that we've been talking about just before, that is altering the broadcast landscape. The uh, idea of privatizing Channel 4 has reared its head again. You know, I think it's a super interesting conversation. Um, on one hand, having a public service broadcaster who has a remit to serve younger viewers and invest and champion in British content um also following you know a very important kind of standard around impartiality and uh, accuracy around you know documentaries and news content is super important and in my view really important from uh, you know ensuring that we have a diverse and free broadcasting landscape however you know a profit orientated buyer may be able to really inject a you know, a lifeblood into a public service broadcast that currently sits to compete in this new world. Um, so I think it's a super interesting subject. I tend to keep 
kind of flip-flopping on which way I sit, um, where I land, although I'm leaning more to keeping it independent and, uh, you know, and not, not privatise it. I don't think the benefits or the opportunities for privatising Channel 4 have really been explored, or certainly I don't think the government has necessarily discussed them in any great detail so far. What would you see the benefits being? Because I think one of the reasons why, uh, as we were talking earlier on with Jonathan, we were we were talking about, you know, maybe it's giving access to new technology, investment. It's really the opportunity to open Channel 4 up to a whole load of new investment. But, you know, obviously, if anyone's going to do that and keep the public service broadcast remit, I'm not really sure how that works. But as an attractive asset, Channel 4, do you think there would be a lot of bidders, a lot of people interesting in, uh, in in buying Channel 4 if it was to be sold? Well, I mean, I think that comes down to price and what it's being asked, what the ask is uh, and where it's positioned. I think if you're having to acquire uh, Channel 4 and maintain the remit, and I don't know necessarily how you legislate for that in a you know, privatized world. Uh, but in the in, in those remits, you know, yes, there's always an opportunity there. And and potentially we know that there is conversations that actually the existing streamers, the Netflixes and the Amazons, are maybe going to have some rules or processes put on them to ensure they have certain remits around addressing things like impartiality and accuracy and maybe even you know, making sure that they serve UK viewers and UK constituents as much as possible. So I think the landscape could change, but certainly the the global budgets like we were talking about earlier mean that it's incredibly difficult for the uh, the likes of Channel 4 to be able to compete with just the spend on content that they're bigger – uh, streaming overlords are spending. So I think investment into the broadcasters is is really exciting and can potentially open it up to be an even more exciting and, 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 and powerful channel. They obviously have great taste. They obviously have an amazing array of, of talent that make great shows and commission great shows, which we'd love to maintain. I guess the biggest concern will be that we lose some of the the benefits of the P- PSB. Mm. We could see Netflix buying Channel 4, maybe. I mean, I mean, you'd have to ask why. Why would they need to? I mean, they could just commission a bunch of shows from the similar sorts of uh, indie film or TV producers and benefit in the same way. I mean, what's the benefit of having a linear channel if you are Netflix? I mean, I don't know how that necessarily grows, your, uh, grows their business. I mean, we've always really look that when when things look like you should go right they tend to go left um similarly they've just announced with their uh venturing into the game arena um so i think netflix and what they move i don't don't see netflix as a traditional uh like a, a suitor necessarily because you know netflix is incredible growing footprint in the uk and internationally and they are investing heavily in localized content which is obviously a key uh, feature of what uh, Channel 4 do. And now it's time for Wayne to nominate his Hero of the Week and who or what he's telling to get in the bin. 
Who's your hero of the week, Wayne? My heroes of the week are the billionaire space race, Musk, Bezos and Branson with this new age of space travel. Yeah. Uh, well, I just literally, just before we were recorded, today's Tuesday, we uh, we saw Bezos coming back down safely. Landed, yeah. With a bit of a bump, yep. I have to say. With a bit of a bump. I'm not sure if it looks quite as comfortable coming down as uh, Virgin Galactic. But it is exciting, isn't it? Actually, seeing this this new frontier. I mean, you could be cynical and say, "Oh, right, you know, it's 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 all these billionaire playboys going up and living out their childhood dreams when there's so much more investment and money needs to be spent across the world." But saying that, I think they're really ushering in a new exciting industry and opportunity for for many people aren't they i totally agree and i think on one hand space tourism gets a lot of press and this idea of this almost indulgent spend on visiting the edge of space for these really millionaires i guess who can afford it but i think for me this whole new age of space travel is a kind of a new frontier it goes way beyond that and you only have to look at how Bezos and Musk in particular are investing in huge constellations of satellites, uh, like several thousand strong, to deliver lots of other things like internet connectivity for hard-to-reach places. And I, I read an article recently about Bezos talking about relocating all heavy industry into space as as a key way to kind of reduce emissions and save the planet. So I think for me... You know, the billionaire space race is exciting. And yes, a lot of the marketing appeal of going to the edge of space gets a lot of attention. But all the other technology and investment in space uh, kind of exploration, I think, has a wonderful opportunity for us all. And also, you know, hats off to these guys. I mean, you know, there's huge risks involved and to, you know, come back and, you know, go in a space rocket in space. I mean, very cool. 200 grand, Wayne, are you going up? <laughs> I think my wife might have a word with me if I were to spend anywhere near that kind of money on a on a day trip to space. Um, so, no, it's not on my uh, to-do list right now. But if anyone wants to invite me to go, uh, happy to tag along. All right. Okay. We'll see if there's any billionaires listening that fancy uh, giving up their extra seat for you, Wayne, then uh, you never know. Yeah, I'm easily reachable. No problem. You can find me very yeah. easily. All right. <laughs> and who or what are you telling to get in the bin? Uh, for me, it's racism in sports, specifically against uh, the, the England trio um, who have just suffered this horrific uh, bout of online racism. And, you know, it's just it's got to go, you know, and it's just disgusting. And I'm, 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 for me, get in the bin. Get in, get out of here. Well, that's a double bin. Jonathan, earlier on in the show, very firmly put that in the bin, and you know we're all in agreement with that. Oh, that's. It's, uh, I'm glad. Time for the social media companies to step up 100%. to the plate and uh, and show some responsibility and leadership in this area. I think. Yeah, and they should kick them out of their platform as much as we should be kicking them out mm, of our stadiums. Absolutely. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on Telecast this week. Really interesting chat. Really enjoyed it, Justin. Thank you. Great, great. Purely Streamonomics report will be available through a link on the Telecast podcast website and through the episode description on whichever podcast provider you have. So thanks again for coming on. We'll see you in real life very soon, Wayne. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks for having me. Well, that's about it for this week's show. As always, thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. Just a quick heads up that next week's show will be our last in this season before we take a short break in August. Don't worry, we'll be back in September. A quick reminder to sign up for our free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you might have missed, downloadable reports and surveys, and exclusive insight and opinion. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in Devon. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.